I remember distinctly my mother's keening wail the night a phone call came into our house telling us my Aunt Joyce Emily had been killed in a car accident. My family had just finished a birthday celebration for my brother, and we were finishing the dishes that August night. I don't know who phoned my mother. I just remember her sitting on the kitchen floor, wailing with the phone in her hand. We were all in shock, and there was nothing to do but to get in the car and to drive to town to tell our grandparents. We were not going to tell them over the phone. Numbness set in during that quiet car ride. My grandparents were surprised to see us at their door. Having lost another daughter to a childhood illness at 12, my grandma and grandpa imagined that they had lost enough children. And here was another, taken away in an instant. They could not comprehend really what my mother was saying. Joyce Emily is dead. It didn't compute. My grandmother cried, and my grandfather just sat, repeating his daughter's name. Joyce Emily. Joyce Emily. Our family was utterly changed that night. My aunt had been a loving, fun, happy woman. I grew up knowing her and her three children, my cousins. A divorce left her raising her family on her own, and none of us could imagine what it would be like never to see my Aunt Joyce Emily again. My grandparents brought her body back to my hometown and buried her in the cemetery there. For years afterward, they would go almost daily to visit her grave. There was something in the ritual of visiting that allowed them to hold on to her for just a bit longer. My grandparents were pragmatic people. They knew my aunt wasn't really at the cemetery. They just weren't ready to let her go yet. After her death, a permanent seriousness settled over their house. My grandfather hadn't been much of a church-goer before the accident, and he stayed away permanently afterwards. My grandmother went to church for the both of them. The community and the volunteer work she found at church helped her carry on. In my family, too, the realization that life can be taken away in an instant became a reality. After that evening phone call, we could no longer pretend grief wouldn't be part of our lives, too. We were not going to get over this. We were not going to get on with life. Our Aunt Joyce Emily was not in a better place. This was not God's will. Grief had moved in permanently, suitcase and all. We were going to have to live with grief and make our peace with it. Nothing lays us bare like grief. Nothing strips away the unnecessary like grief. Only those who have grieved themselves have any idea what another grieving person is going through, and even then only obliquely. 
For no two persons grieve the same way. No two people manage loss alike. No two people move on with their lives at the same pace. Because grief changes people, life before it and life after it are not the same. Grief never goes away. It just becomes more manageable. It becomes less sharp and demanding. It fits in your pocket rather than covering your whole self. Grief changes our lives, and grief always speaks the truth. As horrible as that evening was when we got the news of my aunt's death, no one that evening was faking anything. We were as real with each other that night as I have ever seen my family. Usually quite in control of our emotions, that evening was raw. My mother wailed, my grandmother cried, my grandfather sat stunned. We kids tried to comfort one another because the adults were too overcome to even think about us very much. Grief laid bare the humanity present. It demanded that we all be ourselves. It shouted at us, life has sorrow, you will not accept, you are not exempt. And as we slowly regained our composure, we realized how alive each of us was. We would never be the same, but it was not we who had died. We had the baffling task of trying to figure out what life meant on the other side of this tragedy. We had to incorporate a new truth into our living. Nicholas Wolterstorff, author of Lament for a Son, accurately describes what grief does to us. Reflecting on his son Eric's untimely death in a climbing accident, he writes, When Eric died, a big part of my own self was ripped out. My desires with respect to him, my commitments, my hopes, my expectations, they were no more. My expectation that he would be home for the summer was no more. My plan to attend his graduation was no more. For a month or so, I caught myself still planning to do things with him, still expecting him to call on the phone. Eventually, the realization sunk in, all the way down, that he was dead. I had to learn to live around that gaping wound and with that grief. Grief was not just an additional component of my life. I had to live a new kind of life, one for which I had no practice. For Walter Storff, as for many of us, it was hard to make theological sense of his son's death. Like us, he rejected any notion that God had caused this death or had failed to prevent it. Even we Unitarian Universalists who may believe in God have no room for a theology that says God saves lives and takes lives on a whim. Evil surely exists in the world, but it does not come from God. Evil comes from human greed and selfishness. My family would never know what possessed the man who killed my aunt to drink enough alcohol that day that he could not keep his pickup truck 
on the right side of the road. We will never know why he survived and she did not. We can never play the game of what if, not even for a moment. She was there, he was there. She died, he lived. God had nothing to do with it. But God did not abandon us either. Faith is one of the things that allowed us to absorb such a great loss. Like Nicholas Wolterstoff, my family and I had to come to grips with the fact that free will means we also suffer grief. It does, but it does not mean that we are left without comfort. He continues, I did not shy away from taking note of the gaping void in me that Eric's death had caused. I did not shy away from voicing my lament over his death. I could not bring myself to try to figure out what God was up to in Eric's death. I joined the psalmist in lamenting without explanation. Things have gone awry in God's world, he writes. I do not understand why, and I do not understand why God puts up with it for so long. Rather than Eric's death evoking in me an interest in the origins of evil, it has had the effect of making God more mysterious. And it is that mystery that I live with. Because grief speaks the truth, it has no time for games. Grief has no patience for people who want to explain it away. Grief makes no space for plat, for pat answers or platitudes. It stares us right in the face and says, here I am. It acknowledges, its acknowledgement of grief and loss is part of what makes my Unitarian Universalist faith so strong. I deeply appreciate the theological honesty of Unitarian Universalism. Rather than offering false hope, Unitarian Universalists say to us, you are strong enough to deal with this. Rather than throwing up its hands in resignation, it says, you are surrounded by people who love you and who will help you. Rather than blaming hard things on other worldly sources, it says, we are all in this together, and we will persevere. Part of the reason we UUs are so drawn to the notion of God as mystery is that we live unflinchingly in the real world. We don't imagine anyone is going to come and rescue us. We don't pretend that we are not part of the problem ourselves. We did not create evil, but we do perpetuate it. We would like the world to be better, but we are not expecting a savior. Call it what you like. Love, spirit of life, ground of being, great mystery. We live our faith with our eyes wide open. We are no strangers to sin, you and I. We are well acquainted with kindness as well. We appreciate the truth, no matter how much it hurts. Did someone say there would be an end 
An end, oh, an end to love and mourning, asks the poet Mace Harton. What has once been so interwoven cannot be raveled, nor the gift ungiven, she replies. Memory makes kings and queens of us. Dark into light, light into darkness spin. When all the birds have flown to some real haven, we who find shelter in the warmth within listen and feel new cherished, new forgiven, as the lost human voices speak through us and blend our complex love, our mourning without end. At my grandmother's funeral, some 25 years after my Aunt Joyce Emily was killed, we were all standing in the cemetery after the burial. My family was there. Two of my aunt's three grown children were there too. And a little 18-month-old great-granddaughter. It was a beautiful autumn day there on the hill overlooking my hometown. The men from the funeral home had just left, and we were hanging around as happens in cemeteries after funerals. One of my cousins asked where his mother's grave was. One of us easily pointed to it just a little way off, and we all walked over there. Then my cousins began doing something my mother thought strange. They began taking photos of themselves with my Aunt Joyce Emily's gravestone. Isn't that kind of strange, my mother asked me. Not really, I replied. It's the only tangible thing they have left of her, I said. This answer seemed to satisfy my mother. As the little girl patted the granite headstone bearing the name of the grandmother she would never know, I could see a lightness come over my cousins. Grief had gotten a little bit smaller for them that day. It hadn't left them, but it hadn't ruined them either. May we be so wise and so brave. So be it. Amen. Amen.